Behold, the genius Lanny Popper, the world's smartest man. Sometimes what goes on behind the scenes is stronger than the soap opera on the video school. You are listening to The Genius Cast with Lanny Poffo. I am co-host J.P. Zarka, ProWrestlingStories.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the poet and limerick writing, motivational speaking brother of WWE Hall of Famer, Macho Man Randy Savage, The Genius, Leaping Lanny Poffo. Welcome to the Genius Cast. My name is Lanny Poffo, and I'm here with... J.P. Zarka, ProWrestlingStories.com. We've got a big, big show today, don't we? Yes, we do. We have a very special episode of the Genius Cast for you all today, where we're going to have the privilege to talk with Brian Blair, current president of the Cauliflower Alley Club, and one half of the tag team, the Killer Bees. It's going to be a special interview. You don't want to miss out, so stick around for that. It's going to be fantastic and just the tip of the iceberg because thanks to J.P. Zarka, the Genius Cast has big momentum. What about, what of all the fantastic things that are going on? Oh, you know what? We've been getting a lot of good praise. You know, we just recently had an episode about Randy and baseball. And on the website ProWrestlingStories.com, we had an accompanying piece about his time in baseball. And that's been spread around. Dave Meltzer's been saying fantastic things about it. A lot of sports journalists and you know, that was great to see, and it's good to be uh, putting some light on a time in Randy's life that's not much talked about anymore. That's right, and I think baseball's loss was wrestling's gain. What do you think? I completely agree about that. Now, Lanny, since we've last talked, you've had an appearance in the Motor City, Detroit, Michigan. In fact, you just got back last night. How did everything go out there? Oh, I met some fantastic people. Tony took care of me all the way, and uh, what a great guy, and... Now, I'm not going to give his last name because he's got so many groupies. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But he's an Italiano, you know what I mean? And he drove me everywhere, and we had a good time. Oh, fantastic. So he doesn't have a record or anything. We're trying to keep his, uh, his name. No, no, he's got <laughs> nothing going on. No, ten arrests, no convictions. There Perfect record. Perfect citizen. Now, I love that video that you shared on Facebook, which, which had like the mini lookalikes of Randy and Liz, played by Isabella and Cora. That was too cute. And it was good for them to help us plug our show. Yes, and they, they didn't need any arm twisting because I was the judge of that contest and they were the winners. They look great. If, if you want to see what we're talking about, head over to uh, at the Genius Cast on Twitter or Facebook, or you can find Lanny on Facebook, and we all sh- we shared that there. Now, did you hear about the update on the class action concussion lawsuit against WWE? Well, I've been busy. Uh, wh- what do you know? All right, so we talked about this in our first episode of the Genius Cast, and for those who do not know... The lawsuit alleged that WWE did not provide adequate protection in regards to injuries from head trauma and concussions for wrestlers, and that led to many health issues later in life. Now, over 50 former wrestlers jumped onto this class action lawsuit, and it turns out the case was deemed meritless, and the United States District Court of Connecticut dismissed all lawsuits against WWE. That's a huge win for WWE, and what are your thoughts on that? Well... I don't want to rehash anything, but I did get a phone call from that lawyer a few years ago, and uh, I informed him that I read John Grisham novels, and I read King of Tort, and I learned that nobody makes money on a class action lawsuit except the lawyer. And 
He said, no, no, this is going to be different. I said, look, why do you think they call me the genius? Let me tell you something. I never got a concussion, and Vince McMahon had the greatest rings I've ever worked on in my life. I mean, he had, um, it was like an amateur wrestling mat, um, and then a canvas over that. And I don't see how you could protect your wrestlers more than that. Now, on that list of people who were suing WWE, you had Road Warrior Animal. You've had uh, Jimmy uh, Superfly Snuka, Paul Orndorff, Chavo Guerrero Jr., Adam Bomb, Ahmed Johnson, Kamala, King Kong Bundy. You've got Sabu, Smash and Axe, The Berserker. And even you had some referees on the list. The Hebners were on there. Do you think that was justifiable for you know some of these names to be on this class action lawsuit? Um, and Slick was a manager. How do you uh, get a how in how in the world do you get a concussion from being a manager? You know, I was just a manager and I got kicked in the mommy daddy buttons and all in, but I didn't go sue anybody because just think it was probably my fault anyway. If I were like um, famous Dick wrestler Joey Ryan, I could have probably broken that fat guy's foot right on my crotch. <laughs> Yeah, there wouldn't be any suing. You'd be having too much fun to sue. Right. Now, listen, that's, uh, it was a, what they say, it was, it was deemed meritless? Meritless. And it's been thrown out of court. That's good, because you know something? Uh, if it wasn't for Vince McMahon, nobody would know who I was, and Macho Man would be the greatest wrestler that you've never heard of. So that's what I think of that. I'm sure a couple of these names could feel the same way about Vince, or should anyway. Well... You know, I feel appreciative. I'm sorry if they don't. Now, this week I was listening to the Jim Cornette Experience podcast, episode 249 to be exact, and Jim brought up the time the Midnight Express went to the Tennessee Territory. And this was right around the time that Rick Rude was starting out and he was quite green or new to the business. Probably only six months into his career, in fact. Now, Jim believes you were Rude's partner in this match. Do you remember this match in particular? It must have been in Mid-South. We're working for Bill Watts, not for Tennessee. Okay, yeah, I think Jim mentioned that it was in the Tennessee Territory. So, all right, so you were in Mid-South at the time? If I was um, teamed with anybody, it was the Macho Man himself, okay, in Tennessee. But um, when I was just leaving when Jimmy Cornette was coming in, and I have to say my best matches were against the Midnight Express. Now, in that match, when you were tag you were tagging with Rick Rude... It was probably the first or second show of the Midnight Express being in that territory. Now, you were the more experienced guy on the team while Watts was giving this new chiseled kid, Rick Rude, a, a break. Now, as Jim explained, and this is quite funny, Rude tags in and he puts the headlock on Dennis Condry, and Condry calls for the next set of moves, which was some of their Tennessee spots, as uh, Cornette called it. And it was the heel's responsibility to call the match in the ring. So what Rude did was he tagged in, he put Dennis in a headlock. Dennis goes to shoot Rude off, but Rude holds on to the headlock. Dennis goes to throw him off again, but Rude hangs on to the headlock again, and he walks around the ring three times with the headlock still in place, and then he tags you, and he gets out of the match. Uh, after the match, Cornette was asking Condry, what was that? And because it was a separate locker room at the time, you had the faces and the heels separate, so there was never talking over what the match was going to be before the match. It was just called in the ring. Now, the way Condry explained it to Cornette was he was calling a spot to Rude while in the headlock. I'll shoot you off, drop down, nail Bobby, and get it again. And Rude goes, what? I'll shoot you off, drop down, nail Bobby, and get it again. Again, Rude goes, what? Dennis then goes, and he's speaking slowly, 
I will throw you into the ropes. I will fall down in front of you, jump over me, continue moving, strike Bobby in the face, and then return to the headlock. Now, at that point, Rude's mind was a bit blown, and he responds, I can't get it. And so Condre gives up and says, fuck it, tag out. And that's when, uh, you know, Rude was getting a lot of education in the business. And what was it like working with the green Rude? And what what are some of your memories of him? Well, I remember the, that very incident happened exactly as uh, Jim Cornette said, okay? And, I mean, I could hear it from the tag team rope, and I'm sure the first five rows of audience could hear every word that was going on. You know, they <laughs> they were going to jump up and say, one tackle drop down, you know, hit Bobby, get it again, or whatever it was. So, you know, the audience was going to say that. That's why I never liked to talk in the ring because when I was a fan, I always could see them talking in the ring. And that's an expose. So right. I just didn't, you know, I listened in the ring sometimes, but I didn't always talk in the ring. And so anyway, the thing was Rick Rude was green. And then when I saw him in Tennessee, he'd improved drastically. And then by the time he got to the WWE, he was already fantastic. So he did have a learning curve, and I guess the light bulb went on. Um, but you cannot knock his professionalism when he finally got to the WWE. He even had great matches with Ultimate Warrior, and that is some trick. <laughs> Not easy to pull off a good match against him, I take it. No, it wasn't. <laughs> No, that seems to be a common trend that a lot of guys back in the 70s and 80s and even before then, when they were coming into the business, they weren't really um, kind of walked through the ropes, per se, of how to call things in the ring and what certain speak meant and so on. So do you have any funny stories of when you were getting into the business and what it was like for you when you were green? I was green for a lot of years, okay? And when I wrestled Terry Funk, you could think that I was the greatest worker in the country. And then if I wrestled somebody that was a three, my work would turn into a four. Mm-hmm. I would raise the guy to a four, but never a five, you know. Um, so I was the broom that they worked with. So I'm, I'm not criticizing myself. It's just that some people like Harley Race, some people had the ability to work with a broom handle. That was the expression. Yeah. And I could never do that. But when I wrestled against a great worker... They raised me to their level, and that's when I had a great match. Unfortunately, you have to have more great matches than just the person that you're interested in working with. So, you know, if that answers your question, I don't like false pride or false modesty. I don't want to do that on this show. It's just that, you know, it's just that um, if I was wrestling a guy that was very green, I just kept it to basics. But when I was wrestling a guy like Terry Funk and Bob Orton Jr., all I did was listen and learn. You are as good as your dance partner, as they say. That's true. I've had, you know, I'm not a great dancer, but I was at a wedding and uh, the I was the best man at a wedding and the, the groom's mother asked me if I could dance and I said no. And she says, but it's salsa, merengue, and cha-cha and everything. You should just loosen your body. I'll lead. And <laughs> you would think that I could dance. It's just that if I, you know... If I wrestled some, that's the blind leading the blind, you know, it would be uh, not a good dance. But a bit of a clusterfuck and the fans would see right through it. That's exactly what I was going to say, but I was much too polite. 
<laughs> Leave me to say the naughty words on this show. Now, you and your brother shared a locker room with Brian Blair of the Killer Bees and Paul Orndorff, a friend of his, who's recently fallen on hard times. Now, of course, um, his his son Travis has just put together a GoFundMe account, which is uh, where the fans and wrestlers and others have been able to contribute to helping Paul pay for his property tax, which he's fallen behind on, which was no fault of his own. All of his money has been going towards his medical costs. Now, we're going to talk to Brian in a moment, and he's going to be sharing a lot of stories about Paul. You had matches against Orndorff in 86. You were sporting a fine perm at the time. In fact, you can catch one of your matches against him on YouTube, which is from a Superstars taping in 86. Your brother faced off against Orndorff while Intercontinental Champion in 1986, and again in WCW in 95 as well. What was your relationship like with Orndorff and Brian Blair? Well, Paul Orndorff was a very, very serious man. He was serious about the business, so was the macho man, and he didn't think it was all fun. The first time I met Paul Orndorff, um, well, the first interesting story I've got was at Tingley Coliseum in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I show up on time, but Orndorff is already there. And he's having an argument with Chief J. Strongbow. Mm -hmm. And uh, Strong, Strongbow, I missed the first part of the argument, but Strongbow says, don't give me that gaga. I've had more main events than you've had matches. And Orndorff says, yeah, and it looks like it too. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, that was a great comeback, you know, because... Uh, Orndorff was one of the handsomest men in wrestling, and uh, I think Chief J. Strongbow um, was one of the ugliest men I've ever met. So yeah, Not much on the eyes. No, no, but I'll tell you what. Um, he was more of a fake Indian than Elizabeth Warren. How's that? I'll take it like that. What was your relationship like with Orndorff in the back? He was always nice to me, and I never had any trouble with him. He became my hero when he... Um, you know, said that about Chief J. Strongbow because that was one of my least favorite people in the world, okay? But I didn't have the guts to say that because I would have been fired immediately. What do you have against Chief J. Strongbow? We don't have a long enough show, but let me just be succinct in saying, well, between the two, Pat Patterson and J. Strongbow, at least Pat Patterson had a great personality and he was sociable, Okay. He was fun to be with, and he was, you know, he loved to laugh, and he was a happy guy. Um, if you're going to be on the road with a bunch of wrestlers, it's nice to have a happy dressing room, and Pat Patterson always had a happy dressing room, okay? Um, the only thing I've got against him is that he shouldn't have been in Randy's DVD if he was going to knock him so much. Right. Pat Patterson was on the DVD speaking ill of the dead, um, I want to do it while he's still alive. And uh, Pat, I know we've got a big hit show, so I know you're listening. Um, just call WWE. They've got my number and then you can call me and I will accept your apology and then we'll have him as a guest on our show. Well, what we can do now is actually, I'm going to read out your phone number on the show, and then he can just call that. That's easy. No, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Let's bring things back, because of course, we did talk about Pat Patterson in our first episode, if you guys want to go back and listen to that. What about Brian Blair of the Killer Bees? What was your experiences with him? Have you had any with him now that he's the president of the Cauliflower Alley Club? 
Well, my favorite thing about Brian Blair was, you know how people succumb to peer pressure and people want to laugh at stuff that isn't funny? Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was somebody, I don't remember who, did a joke about the Space Shuttle Challenger blowing up. This was in January of 1986. Yeah, that was terrible. There were a lot of jokes going around about, you know, uh, and I'm not going to repeat them, even though, you know, many years have gone by. I still think it's not funny. I think Christy McAuliffe and all those people on the Space Shuttle Challenger and anybody that puts themselves at risk to be a hero, you know, that's better than I am. Uh, I wouldn't do it. I think it's wonderful that they can. And then... So somebody made a joke about the Space Shuttle Challenger and Brian Blair got angry and he says, that's it. I'm not going to be a part of any of this. And Brian Blair and Jim Brunzel walked out of the room and I just sat there in amazement that finally we've got two guys that stand up for something instead of, uh, oh, we just laugh at anything and anybody. But yeah, I don't think that's funny. Do you? Not at all. No, you don't make jokes about the dead. You know, ever. And, and you know, you're a, te- you're a teacher. And a teacher was the first layperson to be on the Space Shuttle Challenger. And, you know, something went wrong. And, and you know, it's men and machines. Uh, machines break down and men make mistakes. So, of course, it can happen to anybody. I just flew in from Detroit. You know, you know what can happen on a plane. It can go down. But um, it's still better than covered wagon, right? Absolutely. Now, Brian Blair, he's doing a great thing with you know, being a part of the Cauliflower Alley Club. What are your experiences with that club? Unfortunately, I um, Nick Bachmingle was the president and he gave me his card. And, you know, I just never got around to it. I do all my work with Special Olympics. That's my favorite charity because it was my brother's favorite charity. And since he's not here, I want to do more for the Special Olympics. Sure. You know, that's what I want to do. And uh, But let's just say um, I... I think the Cauliflower Alley is great. One day I will go to Las Vegas. It's just that every time they go, I seem to be busy. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you B. Brian Blair. Anytime I can be on the Genius Cast is a great day. <laughs> oh, Brian, I am blushing all over. Thank you so much. Oh, man, I love you, Lanny. I'll never forget when the Leapster, when uh, George Scott was asking Brunzel and I to come up with a name, and I was in love with the 72 Miami Dolphins because the you know they just had an undefeated team, and I was a huge football pl- uh, fan, played football in college. He asked us something catchy, you know, um, to think of something catchy, and I thought about the Killer Bees defense on the Miami uh, 72 Miami Dolphins or their linebacker core, all the linebackers, Baumgarten, Bonacani, you know, they, their last names all ended with, or began with a B. And um, I suggested the Killer Bees. Um, of course, Jimmy liked it. And George Scott comes back. I said, how about, how about the Killer Bees? And, and he was just sitting there in the corner, just kind of listening, listening, you know, like he does. He's always minding his own business and never gets in anybody's way. Just a complete locker room gentleman, 100% etiquette. 
And uh, all, all of a sudden, George comes back from speaking with Vince and says, hey, Vince loves it. You guys are the killer bees. I said, awesome. That's great. That's great. And all of a sudden, Leapster pulls out a out of his uh, <laughs> bag. He pulls out a pair of killer bee tights. And sure enough, those are like the exact replica of the killer bee tights that we wore. So thank you for that, Lanny. Well, you're welcome. And I, I don't want to <clears throat> I don't want to say anything to try to impress you, but I met Mercury Morris and Larry Zonka. Wow, that's great. There's some of the reasons that the um, Miami Dolphins went undefeated in 72. Correct. They called them the killer bee defense because the linebackers, uh, they have four linebackers whose last names all began with a B. So they got the nickname, the killer bees. That's great. So you were named after success. Now, Lanny and I, we were talking before our interview with you, and he was telling me the time you and Brunzel were in the WWF locker room, and they were joking about the 1986 space shuttle, the Challenger, that went down, and it was a bit inappropriate. You didn't want anything to do with it. You stood up, you told the guys off, and you left the room. Now, I thought that was great because you stood up for what was right, and you went against the grain, which is kind of what you're doing now as president of the Cauliflower Alley Club, standing up for what needs to happen and helping out others and being a voice of reason. Well, I appreciate it very much, JP. Um, you know, you got to stick up for what's right, what you believe in, and always have and always will. You know, some, sometimes the, the locker room can be a bunch of rough and rowdy guys, and it was great to see you and Brunzi stand up for, you know, we're not going to laugh at everything. We're going to draw the line right there. And I thought to myself, wow, this is, you know, integrity. So, Excellent. Kudos to you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Leapster. Very good. Very nice. Very nice. I wish uh, uh, Oscar could be here. Um, of course, that's Oscar. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> and I have to tell you how he got named Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> you know, I, Paul... Uh, Paul's a great guy. I mean, we have, I've, I've spent more time on the road with Paul than anybody period. Um, we were glued together for a year in Florida, then for uh, a few years in Watson's territory, uh, a few years in WWE and Georgia for a year all over. And we would always ride together. I remember in Louisiana, Grizzly Smith would always try to catch his riding together. It was like his, that was like his mission in life was to catch Paul and I riding together. He had all his stooges trying to catch us. And, you know, it, um, one time I had a flat tire and we came into, <laughs> we both got to TV late. First time I ever got fined in wrestling. But uh, uh, Paul was late too. So Grizzly swore he had us busted, but he never saw us. So we never admitted to it. So, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> but uh, we did. Um, more things that I could ever mention on your broadcast, I'd be in huge trouble. But we did a lot of fun things. We never hurt anybody, <laughs> but we always had a blast. And um, got in a lot of fights. Um, we never lost one, thanks to Paul. That's good. <laughs> but, uh, he was probably one of the, uh, without a doubt, I think Paul Orndorff and Haku were the two toughest guys in the business in their prime uh, they both would have killed each other before they gave up. I mean, Paul beat up seven sheriffs in Hillsborough County one night. No kidding. Over his brother. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. <laughs> no, no. He put yeah. four of them in the hospital. And, uh, you know, they had um, batons out and everything. He was just going through them uh, one after another. You know, just 22-year-old stud 
that could just squat 600 pounds. And he was, I mean, he knocked out John Matuzak with one punch. You ever heard of John Matuzak? Hell yeah. Six foot, six foot seven. Um, he, he, uh, they were playing basketball with, um, uh, pickup basketball game at the University of Tampa Spartans where Paul played football. He also got drafted uh, and by the Saints. I forget. I think it was the seventh round. And um, he couldn't stay with the Saints because the rookie uh, training at rookie training camp, everybody had to stand up on the table and sing a song before they could eat. So, And then the players would throw biscuits at you or something. So Paul's song was Jeremiah was a bullfrog. So if you ever talk to Paul and think Jeremiah was a bullfrog, he'll look at you right away. (laughs) (laughs) I told you that story because he doesn't share that with too many people, but uh, he couldn't take it and he quit. And he came back, he came back and asked Eddie Graham, you know, Eddie Graham had offered him once before an opportunity to play with, uh, to, you know, try to um, become a professional wrestler. And Paul had thought about that, but he said he wanted to see what football had for him first. Then he came back, obviously, after the uh, training uh, training camp um, calamity and uh, decided to try out with Eddie Graham. And I was really good, uh, had gotten good over, because every summer now, this was my second full-time summer when Paul came in. I had a full-time summer with Hiro Matsuda, Carl Gotch, uh, Nelson Royal, uh, Bob, um, or just a bunch of, about backland briscoes so many gordon nelson so many awesome shooters um and hookers and they taught me a lot and when paul came he was so strong it was very very difficult to stretch and it was only once in a while that i could actually stretch him i mean he couldn't he could not wrestle me but he was so strong that his brute strength was just it was incredible, guys. I can't even tell you how strong he was. Just amazing. Yeah, Paul was quite the specimen. I wonder what it would have been like if you put Paul, Haku, and the likes of Harley Race in a room by themselves in their prime. I wonder how that would have gone. <laughs> Harley was a tough guy, but I don't think uh, Harley would have stood with either one of those guys. No, there's no comparison. Uh, but Harley um, also was packing so that's another reason not to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Harley was always packing. One time I was in his, a Porsche. We were going about 100 miles an hour. I was already scared to death. And he pulls out this giant 44 Magnum and rolls the window down on my side and all of a sudden goes, blam. And I look and he's trying to shoot this rabbit <laughs> at 100 miles an hour while he's going down the road. And um, uh, as if I'm not afraid enough. And now he's not paying attention on a two-lane road. He obviously is being distracted by turning and trying to shoot that rabbit. And, oh, gosh, I can't even tell you. I think my pants were wet after that. (laughs) I bet. Um, I have a story on ProWrestlingStories.com about the time Harley Race stormed into the locker room on Hogan, and he punched Hogan in the face. And this was over uh, the time when, you know, the territories were being taken over by Vince. And, you know, Hogan was on the ground and he said, well, I'm surprised you don't have a gun. At which point, Race took out his 38 Special and pointed it at him, but no gunshots were fired. Yeah. Yeah, I heard about that. Don't know. I never heard Terry tell me the story, but uh, I did hear about it. I'd just like to add that Harley Race has been in several, several car wrecks. Okay. So um, if you're listening at home, speed kills, drive defensively. And uh, if you want to get there early, leave early. <laughs> That's right. And don't text and drive. 
Yeah, don't text and drive. We, what are, you know, social, uh, we're really helping people here. Um, and he was, yeah. he was uh, Paul Orndorff was called the Brandon Bull. Tell us about that. Paul was called the Brandon Bull in high school. He went to Brandon High School. And um, we used to call um, them the country boys, the rednecks, because at that time, Brandon was out in the country and we used to tease him about riding their uh, tractors to school. But Brandon was actually a very, uh, a very good athletic school. And Paul was the best athlete without a doubt. Um, he was all state. He was the Brandon bully. He was a fullback and people literally, uh, it took two people to tackle him, uh, at least. And, um, he had great feet work. Uh, he was quick and just so powerful that he would run over people. So he got the nickname, the Brandon Bull in high school. And it carried through uh, to the University of Tampa Spartans where uh, Paul received numerous scholarship awards uh, or uh, uh, people that wanted to give him scholarships, scholarship offers, but he finally decided to stay home. Of course, he was married to his wife, Rhonda, in high school. And... Um, so there was no reason for him to leave home when you had such a good school in the University of Tampa. And at that time, you know, um, the Spartans were hot. They were drawing like 30,000 people. And then uh, the Bucks came in 76. So I had worked hard and finally signed a letter of intent. And I used to sell sodas while I watched Mr. Wonderful on the field, number 40, him and Freddie Solomon and Leon McQuay and John Tuzak and all these studs, man, just some great people. Sammy Gellerstead, the nose guard, who he was so short and so stocky. One time he went through the center's leg, legs. I'll never forget seeing this because uh, Dayton was about to kick the winning field goal and keep the Spartans from claiming their uh, third straight NCAA uh, Division II championship. And Sammy Gellerstead went through the center's legs and blocked the uh, field goal attempt on the 15-yard line. That was amazing. Wow, I wish I, I wish I'd have been there. Great stories. And, and so anyway, the, the Buccaneers came, and so they all of a sudden, mysteriously, they said, we have to drop the University of Tampa football program because the uh, um, athletic program there is bringing our academics down. Uh, that was their excuse, but I know somehow they were paid off by the Buccaneers because the Buccaneers couldn't have drawn flies with a losing team, which they knew they were going to have at the beginning, and with a winning team like the Spartans drawing 30,000 people on a Saturday night. So um, when we found out that uh, Priestley Davis from uh, Tampa Bay Tech, where I went, um, and I both cried for about a week and went on, and I wound up at Louisville, and Priestley never did go to college. Uh, actually went to HCC, forgive me, but, uh, um, those are some great days. Paul was a stud in football and Paul was a stud in wrestling. And I've been all around the world with Paul from Scali, Italy, uh, Gally. I remember we were, went, worked a show one time for, um, uh, the referee from New York. Um, his name will come to me. He ran the islands, um, on air, Aruba, and Curacao. And Paul and I got Bob Orton Jr. and a couple other guys. Uh, we all uh, coughed up a hundred bucks and chartered this boat to go fishing. So we're out uh, trolling for dolphin. And all of a sudden, Paul says, I got some. 
and um, boy, his, I mean, this big heavy rod that he had was just bending and bending and bending and captain's looking and wow, it's big one, big one. He's up in the crow's nest, um, a big island guy. And uh, he was going crazy. So now about an hour later, I'm not kidding, an hour later, Paul says, I can't hold on to this thing anymore. I'm, I'm blown up. And you could see, I mean, every vein in his arms and everything. He was trying like crazy to get this fish in. And so Orton Jr. takes over. Um, he's fighting it. Then I took it for a while. Then I'm trying to think of a guy's name. He he just laid in the boat and puked most of the day. But uh, <laughs> he finally got up and held the rod for about 10 minutes and had to go back down on the floor. Finally, after all these this time, and I'm talking about way over two hours, uh, <clears throat> the captain had already reeled into the shore because he had some kind of record, and we had no idea we were fishing for dolphin. We didn't know what we were going to catch. And all of a sudden, this giant fin comes out of the water, and it's about six foot long. Now, this fish, the line kind of slacks up, and Orton Jr. pulls it and pulls it and pulls it, and all of a sudden this fin's coming towards us and towards us and it's longer than the boat. The captain now is really freaking out. It's a whale shark. They swim through plankton and somehow when he was swimming through the plankton, Paul hooked him. And I mean, it was crazy where everybody's taking pictures and, um, it was just such a beautiful, beautiful animal, docile animal. And Orton tries to bring its head up a little more and, the line went limp and he pulls it up and the um, whale shark had actually straightened the hook out. Wow. So now the captain's uh, in tears because the fish is getting away and you could see the boat coming to document, I guess, for him that he caught this fish on the line and it was a big deal to him. So his prize got away and so did ours, but uh, that's a memory we'll never forget. What an experience. Now, you were talking about how Paul was from Brandon, Florida, which is outside of Tampa. Now, Tampa does produce a lot of good wrestlers, big stars such as, you know, Orndorff, Buddy Colt, Austin Idol, and some guy named Terry Bollea. What do you think it is about Tampa that produces such amazing stars? Well, Tampa was always a hotbed of wrestling. Um, almost every, um, Lanny can tell you, almost every top name came through um uh, Florida, so they got to experience our weather and our uh, how nice the Tampa Bay area region is, and so a lot of people made this their homes because so many of the wrestlers came here, and it was a great territory because you could live in Tampa, and you'd be on the road seven days a week. You know, Monday you'd be in uh, Fort Lauderdale, for example. Tuesday, Tampa. Uh, Wednesday, you do TV in the morning, then you fly if you were lucky to Miami. Most of the guys have to drive, um, and then Thursday. Uh, and then, of course, you come back to Tampa. Thursday would be Jacksonville. Um, Friday would be a spot show, Fort Lauderdale or whatever. Saturday was either uh, Lakeland or St. Pete. Um, Sunday was always the Eddie Graham Sports Center at 8 o'clock. But uh, every other Sunday was uh, Ocala at the High Life Fronton Center at 1 o'clock. So we'd have a double shot on Sunday. So we were working uh, two times on television. Um, sometimes three times and then we would do uh uh double shots on sundays and we would never get a day off i mean florida you might get uh one day off two days off if you're lucky so you're having over 360 matches a year uh, it's 
pretty tough on your body, but it was, it's great territory and people just move here and flock here. Um, so many people came out of this territory because of the good talent that was here. And Eddie Graham had hero, Matt Suda, uh, his major role for the promotion hero, of course, was a wrestler, but then he also bought into the promotion and he, he was the enforcer. He was the one that you had to go through hero to break into the business. So, I think out of the uh, three summers that I trained with him, three full summers that I trained with uh, Hero, over well over a hundred people came. Um, Danny Spivey left, Scott Hall left, a lot, a lot of guys left. Uh, it was it was brutal. I mean, absolutely brutal, brutal to the training camp. Talking a thousand Hindi squats, thousand push-ups, sets of a hundred, um, wrestling for fifteen minutes straight, amateur wrestling. Um, in in 105 degrees, uh, high humidity sportatorium. But uh, Paul Orndorff was the first to make it, and then last summer was Hulk Hogan, Terry Balea. So the three of us were the only three that made it during those three years. A lot of people left without their clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it was brutal. I bet. Now, but at least with that type of training, it probably prepared you for what was to come in the ring. You probably never got blown out or too tired after having training like that early on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You guys were on the road 350 plus days a year. And as you said, 360 plus matches, you guys were a different breed back then. I mean, that's incredible. You've got Travis Orndorff, the son of Paul. He recently put out a video talking about how many wrestlers from your era didn't realize the health risks they were putting themselves through by wrestling as much as they did and living the way that they did back then. It's kind of like how uh, the NFL is looking into things now and making changes as the results from the past. How does the Cauliflower Alley Club help wrestlers of your era and today, and you know whether it be financially or through health support? Because I think what you're doing is fantastic. First off, it's it's such an honor and such a joy. It's a real blessing, actually, to be able to be such a uh, um, be a part uh, of such a wonderful organization. Believe me, we help so many people. JP and uh, you know, Lanny knows. I mean, we can't announce. We don't uh, announce the names that we that we help. We've helped we've helped fourteen people just since our last reunion that we're in dire straits and um you know we we're only allowed to give so much money per individual uh per our bylaws and we went above and beyond with paul uh and uh with um with um uh brickhouse brown as well because he had uh stage four lymph node cancer and was not getting any treatment but we have helped uh other guys that uh, that i can mention like bobby the brain heenan uh kamala um big names and, and it's due to no fault of their own, you know, either it's usually from, uh, diseases, hospital bills, you know, um, operations, um, cancers, different types of, um, uh, health issues, uh, or divorce, divorces, or they met Bernie Madoff, you know, made bad investments. Um, so when they, uh, if you are part of the, if you, we're in the in, made a living in the wrestling industry for at least three years. You're ed- eligible for financial help, and you can join the Cauliflower Alley Club for twenty five dollars. And you know, for the fans, uh, you know, we have a we're getting ready to have our fifty fourth reunion, April uh, twenty 
29th, 30th, and May 1st are the official days, um, which is a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And we have $45 rates at the hotel, uh, which is great. We have a really nice hotel with about 15 restaurants in it and uh, casinos and all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, it is just off the chain. Last year we had Shawn Michaels and uh, Harlem Heat and just uh, Steve Kern went on and on and on. Great, great talent. And we sell out every year. It's a blast. But the Cauliflower Alley Club uh, does so many wonderful things for these people. Um, it's amazing. And to see to see where we um, how much the wrestling fans and his colleagues love Paul to see him um, you know be able to max to hit his goal on the GoFundMe account and it was 24 hours after I put it up on my social media uh, he had reached his goal and they were sitting at around a hundred bucks and then we get up to like ten three I think. Yeah, within 24 hours, it was raised over $10,300. Now it's sitting at um, just a bit over 10800 at the time of this recording. But what a beautiful display from fans and folks within the business alike. I mean, you even had Chris Jericho. He donated $1,000 to this. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, you know, something like this must be bringing such a wide range of emotions for Paul and his family. It's incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I didn't really look at, I need to go back and look at who those donors were because I need to call Chris in and thank him and because um, Paul was so thankful. Actually, uh, Travis was supposed to film uh, something with his dad saying thank you and post that. He told me that he did. I have to look for that. Yeah, that was posted about a day or two ago. It's quite a sweet video. You've got Paul sitting outside the house thanking the fans, and it was really nice. And if anyone wants to see that video, you can find it through Paul's GoFundMe website, I believe, or just by a quick Google search. But what it's what's important for everyone to understand is is that this wasn't another case of a wrestler, you know, spending money irresponsibly over the years. Orndorff was under financial duress due to the medical costs, and he had a lot of great expenses due to, um, you know, his stage four cancer. And so doing this um, GoFundMe, it helped him pay off the property taxes, which he fell behind on due to these medical costs. And I, I believe all extra money is going towards his medical costs, which are still surmounting. But really, the help from the fans and, you know, how quickly this money was raised is really remarkable. Yeah, it's a, it's it's great. It's a great feeling, and it's a team effort. It's because of the people that join the Cauliflower Alley Club. You know, twenty five dollars. We make about twelve dollars off of that because we send four copies of our award winning newsletter uh, that you can't find on the internet. You get four copies of that each year, plus uh, a certificate that's suitable for hanging. I know I have mine hanging right behind me. And it's an honor to be honored at the CAC. It's a big deal. Um, if you look at Jack Briscoe's eulogy uh, that was spread throughout the world uh, via social media, it listed five accomplishments for Jack Briscoe. First being the NWA heavyweight champion, second being the NCAA uh, champion, third being uh, second in the NWA uh, championships, uh, fourth his Luthes honor at the Cauliflower Alley Club, and fifth was his men's wrestling honoree at the Cauliflower Alley Club. So uh, I thought that was pretty amazing. Greg Price had, uh, uh, Greg uh, Oliver had written that eulogy, and um, it was the one that everybody uh, went with. 
So the relevance of the CAC is huge to be honored, but the relevance of what our fans and what our um, volunteer, 100% volunteer board members do is also fabulous. And it uh, culminates into a tremendous uh, opportunity to um, help these people that um, gave so much and entertain people for so long that have just fallen on difficult financial times due to no fault of their own. So please, any of your listeners, we would appreciate it if you went to cauliflowerallyclub.net, I mean, .org, cauliflowerallyclub.org. It's spelled cauliflower, just like the vegetable, alley, A-L-L-E-Y, club.org, and join today. Yeah, it'll be the best $25 you ever invested. Um, if you join as a life membership, it's a tax write-off for 300 bucks, and uh, you never have to worry about joining again and of course you can go to all of our wonderful reunions just like the 54th coming up um at the end of uh, april and that's going to be in las vegas am i right in las vegas yes lost wages <laughs> lost wages that's absolutely right <laughs> now the beauty of pro wrestling is that the talent and fans alike we're all part of this family where we come together and we help when somebody's in need you know and brian you what you're doing is you're at the helm of a lot of this you know, when something's happening, you know, take, for instance, what happened with Brickhouse Brown and his health issues back in July before he sadly passed away, a lot of the messages were coming through you. You're the voice of many when they're down, and really, you should feel proud. I think what you're doing is amazing. Well, thank you, JP. I appreciate it. It's a labor of love. It truly is. I have I have some tremendous Paul Orndorff ribs. I mean, after all that time, you don't, you don't go on the road without a lot of ribs, but... First, I got to tell you how he was named Oscar. This is Paul's first trip to Japan, and it's a six-week tour. <laughs> Big John Studs on the tour with us. Uh, Galilee. We had a, we had a heck of a crew, a heck of a crew. Uh, quick jaw, Rick McGraw. Um, anyway, about uh, uh, <laughs> Paul, about the third week. He's bitching every day. I mean, he's griping about this, about that. He just wants to get home. He can't stand it. He doesn't like the food, you know. And <laughs> the biggest thing about Paul, you know, is uh, Paul was a, uh, a frisky guy. Let me put it that way. So, um, you know, there was uh, no talent around um, <laughs> there, uh, so to speak. And uh, anyway, he was, a, he was a grouch. And all of a sudden, Big John Studd says, you know, Paul, he said, my kids have a TV show that they watch at home. It's called Sesame Street. Have you ever heard of, heard of it? And he said something like, John, I don't even watch cartoons. I don't even want to think about it. You know, that's how grouchy you. So he says, well, that's what I'm talking about because you're exactly like Oscar the Grouch. He lives in a trash can and that's where I, we ought to put you in a trash can and put a lid on the top. And so and everybody kept calling him Oscar after that. And, uh, it was funny. I mean, for the whole tour, he was Oscar. And then John Studd, everybody that was on the tour would call him Oscar forever after that so and he truly was i mean if he got upset man he was like oscar the grouch so he'd get lost you know coming for uh like in new york um when you have to stay in new jersey at that was that hotel lanny uh howard, howard johnson's uh not the howard johnson's um uh there's another one in new jersey there that we used to stay at not far from the airport or from new york city um uh, I know we used to stay at the Howard Johnson, but this was another one. And it was so hard getting there, you know, being Florida drivers and going up to New York and they have these roundabouts and these different ways of guiding traffic. And Paul would get lost in this little 
uh, Toyota Corolla that he had, and uh, he'd pull that steering wheel so hard. One time he broke the steering wheel, just yanking on it so hard, and that's pretty tough to do. So, uh, you know, he was, uh, Paul was wired up. He loved to go to the gym. First thing in the morning, man, he had to go to the gym. And uh, he was a great influence to be around because he wasn't, uh, he wasn't into drugs. He wasn't into alcohol. He was, he was a great guy. I mean, he would uh, drink a couple beers or have a little wine or something, but, you know, you'd never see Paul drunk. And, uh, and you know, in Japan, uh, we get a little tipsy once in a while. That's all you got to do. But uh, never drunk. And so he was a good influence uh, on my life as far as that regard. And I'll tell you this story. It's kind of a, oh, this is a dirty story, man, but I've I got to share it. I've never shared this story with anybody. I don't, I don't believe I have, but uh, you got a PG audience? No, don't leave, don't leave anything out, please. Okay. 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 Here, this is what happened. Okay, we're in uh, Bill Watts' territory, and I hurt my knee somehow, and we used to always share a car, Paul and I, and we'd heal a room. You know, we'd go check in for one. We always knew the days in had two beds, and it was uh, like 33 for a single and 39 for a double, so we'd save six bucks plus tax by checking in for one. So Paul goes to check in, and uh, I'm, I'm sitting in the back seat, my knee's killing me, and he brings out a bag of ice. I thought, dang. Man, that's really nice of Paul, man. I can't believe Oscar just uh, grabbed a bag of ice from my knee. I've never seen him that considerate. So he goes, come on, beep. Uh, I got uh, I got as a room, man. Put this on your knee and, you know, we'll uh, you'll be okay. and We'll be able to go to the gym. So, <laughs> okay, thanks, Paul. So uh, um, we parked right by the hotel room where we're going up to. And he goes, wait there, wait there. Come on, let me help you out. So... I should have known something then, but because Paul's not the kind of guy that's going to come open the door for you. But uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm backing out. My knee's killing me, and I'm just about out. And he gooses me so hard. He hit me in the booty about as hard as you could hit somebody. And my head went straight up and hit the top of the roof, the you know, inside the door. And I got, now I've got this big goose egg. And I'm, oh, I'm cussing at Paul, and he's laughing. He thinks that's so funny. So we get to the room and uh, get our stuff up there. Now I got a sore knee and a sore head and all these things. Come on, hurry up, people. We got to get to the gym. We got to get to the gym. I said, Paul, man, my knee hurts. My head hurts. Give me a minute. He says, come on, come on. So in the meantime, I'm sitting on the bed um, just trying to get myself together. And I see Paul fighting like crazy because he never wears underwear. And he, for some reason, he's lazy, likes to pull his jeans off over his shoes. And so he doesn't have to take his shoes off. And so he's, so he can put his gym pants on. So he's got one hand on the wall and he's jumping up and down, trying to get this, his pant is stuck on his shoe. And as I see that, I look to the left of me and there's a brand new number two pencil. Uh, and it hadn't been sharpened right next to the bed. There's one that was sharpened and one that wasn't sharpened. So I took the one that, didn't have the, wasn't quite sharpened because it was longer. And I licked the end of it and I go line it up and he's jumping up and down. And all of a sudden I hit him right in the bullseye. And as he went, ah, 
guy jumps up in the air. He's got, ah, screaming so loud. Ah, and he's reaching back and he can't, when he, when he went up, the whole pencil sucked up his rectum. Oh. And, and, and so now he's pinching back there, trying to get a hold of this pencil. He's bending over. He's screaming. He's doing, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. So he's, he's, now he's starting to come after me. So I run around and I open the door and I, he just misses grabbing my shirt. And so he's got one pants down and he's, he's trying to grab this pencil out of his ass. And just as he, he does, he takes two steps out the door and the door shuts behind him and he doesn't have a key. And I'm saying, come on, Paul, get me. Cause I know he can't run. <laughs> and I'm laughing at him. He's screaming, help me, man, help me. You got to get this thing out of me. And all of a sudden he, he turns around and the, there's this big, big, uh, very nice, um, a, a black, uh, maid. And she looks at Paul and he's stock naked and he's trying to pull a pencil out of his butt. And she says to him, Oh my Lord, I don't know what you guys be doing. I don't know what you guys be doing. I don't want to know. I'll be back. I'll be back. And she picked that maid cart and went away. And it was, Paul was so embarrassed. It was the funniest thing, the way the maid put it over. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I'm, I don't even know how he got back in the room. I left because I thought he was going to kill me. So, you know, I guess he got his pants back on or something and went down to the test. But that was, that was hilarious. I don't even know how he got the pencil out of his butt. That must have been an interesting workout after all that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, just rib after rib after rib after rib. Um, and so many fights. One time we were in the Shakey's Pizza in North Little Rock. And uh, this big lumberjack guy comes walking in and uh, he's staring at Paul. This guy's about six, seven, uh, probably three uh, in the high threes, just a giant man, mountain Mike kind of guy. And um, I said, Paul, that guy keeps staring at you, man. You must have messed around with one of his girls or something. He said, no, I don't know what you're talking about, Brian. Uh, I said, all right, I'm going to keep an eye on him for you. He says, yeah, please do. I said, okay, I will. And so somehow we wanted to eat this pizza. I don't know where, where the guy was or what was happening, but I was playing this pinball machine called Aces High. And as I'm playing the pinball machine, all of a sudden I see something whiz past my head and I hear a loud poem. Somebody punched somebody and I turn around and that big guy was after me. He was getting ready to hit me from behind. Paul was watching. He saw it. Paul hit him one time with that left. I mean, he has got the most brutal left hook you've ever seen. He hits him one time with the left hook. The guy goes straight down and hits his head on the concrete. Boom. Now he's laying there and we're trying to wake him up, trying to get him up and he's not waking up. So Paul goes, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. So obviously he's driving. I'm going to follow Paul. So we left and the guy was still laying there when we left. Um, but that's how tough Paul is. And he was one punch, man. And the guy was completely knocked out, completely knocked out. Just so many other times and so many other stories. Just Paul's just, uh, he's got, you know, he, he could work with a broomstick. He's the only guy I know or, that I ever saw that could make junkyard, bring a hundred percent out of junkyard dog and junkyard would make a tremendous comeback and just stand in the middle of the ring. Paul would feed him, he'd clothesline, Paul would feed him, he'd slam him. 
Um, Paul told him to shoot him into the road, he'd backdrop him. You know, I mean, Junkyard never had to move. Paul had all, and he'd sell every single move to the max. And uh, it was just fabulous. He was, Paul was just such a great wrestling technical heel. Um, and he was so intense, you know, when they started that Paula chant, that was great. That was great. Um, and it's just a shame to be seeing him have such health issues at the moment. Can you give us an update how he's doing overall right now? You know, he's having problem with his memory, obviously, uh, a, a lot of problems with that. And he's on some medication that's been helping. Um, so, uh, um, you know, I will uh, uh, just keep praying for him, and as, as long as as long as he's in communication with, he only really right now. Paul really recognizes uh, a couple people other than his family members, and fortunately, I can pick up the phone two weeks from now, now anytime, and he can go back and recollect and remember so many things and. He's always happy when I call him and smile and uh, it just makes me, you know, that's part of my weekly chores to make sure I communicate with Paul. So he's, uh, it's not a chore. It's actually an honor. And, um, you know, he's in all three hall of fames, um, WWE, Iowa, Texas, the guys, uh, he's even in the Florida hall of fame The guys. Amazing. Um, he's, uh, uh you know, he's, he's healthy, he's healthy. And, you know, he beat stage four lymph node cancer, right? which was, I thought we were going to lose him. I really did. And, you know, it went into his throat and he finally beat all that. So with that though, kind of put some more pressure on his brain, which, you know, he's had several concussions and unfortunately they're finding, um, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, um, neuron or something, a t- something called a TAU, T-A-U that they can find in living people's brains that will, that, um, the researchers say is all CTE patients have this TAU thing inside of them. So Paul has CTE, um, as diagnosed by his doctors and you know, he's taking medicine and hopefully the medicine, he's getting ready to raise the dosage. So hopefully that'll, that'll help his memory because his body's healthy. So just hope it does. Absolutely. Now are fans and people able to still contribute to his GoFundMe account? Is that still active? Like is the money now going to be able to go towards his medical costs? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just because they've paid the tax bill doesn't mean they're out of the woods. I mean, they have to eat, and, you know, they just have social security. So it's very difficult. And then, you know, um, Rhonda is kind of like my, my wife, an enabler. Um, you know, she lets Buzz's kids, uh, Paul's older son, um, had some problems. And so Rhonda's raised like, uh, eight kids, um, of buzzes from two or three different women and even taking the women in. And so, you know, Paul doesn't really know about, I mean, he knows the grandkids are there and all that kind of stuff. And he was okay with it at first when things weren't so bad, but 
it's getting to where, you know, she's got to kind of cut the bait with them and, uh, just take care of Paul, but that's kind of personal stuff. And, but, uh, you know, we, uh, appreciate our wrestling fans and they're like family to us. So we would never be where we were at without the wrestling fans. So, you know, it's doesn't hurt to let them inside of the uh, house sometimes. Now, being that you're the president of the Cauliflower Alley Club and that you've seen a lot of stuff, good and bad, what advice do you have to give for current and upcoming wrestlers as well as former wrestlers that they can take on board and help them? What what advice do you have? Well, a couple of things. Probably the first one, Lanny would uh, tell them first, save your money. Um, both Lanny and I have learned it's not how much you make, it's how much you save. And... We've always been, you know, I, I wrestled uh, Angelo Poffo, and even then, Angelo would tell me, save your money, kid, save your money, kid, save your money. I mean, he drilled that at me. So a, a lot of the old timers did that. And, and, and it's so true because you never know how long your career is going to be. Uh, you don't know what's going to be around. So we would many times, you know, skimp and live a pauper's life, making a good salary and just so we could save and Fortunately, I was able to do that and turn them into Gold's Gems and then be an uh, elected countywide politician and go on and do some other things that uh, were very good. And I've been blessed that, uh, you know, financially, we don't have to worry about an electric bill. The next thing I would say is you have to be uh, a business person. You need to be humble. Uh, you need to be quiet. Don't speak unless spoken to, to unless you feel comfortable enough to have a conversation with somebody. And when you're doing that, you need to be respectful of everyone. Um, and it's just like um, uh, uh, Steve Kern said when he was addressing who's been who's trained more people in the WWE than any person alive. Um Paul, uh, Steve said that Vince isn't looking for the greatest uh, guy with the biggest muscle or the guy with necessarily not even the guy with the greatest talent. He's looking for people with integrity, people that he can count on, that he knows if he sends them uh, somewhere to represent the WWE, that they're going to do it with class and dignity. And that's the kind of people that Vince is looking for now. Of course, you got to be an athlete. Of course, you got to be able to wrestle. But if you don't have the very first thing that he wants, you're not going to make it. If you're a butthead, if people don't like you, um, I'm sorry, you're you're not going to get that opportunity. Now, there's people that have made it that kind of forget those values, but you know that is what it is. That is really good advice. In fact, you can use um, that advice outside of wrestling. Um, but you know, if you are a wrestler, if you get to New York, don't be a butthead, you know, <laughs> represent yourself well, you're representing the company and, you know, very good advice you gave there. Are you and Brunzel still in contact? Are you guys still friends? Yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy and I have never had an argument. Um, his new comic book is coming out by the way, next month, you can go to inversepress.com and get the, uh, jumping Jim comic book. And while you're there, pick up the B Brian Blair one. And so you can have a set because our killer bees together, like, um, my comic book that came out, uh, like leapers got one as well at inversepress.com, Um, which is very good. Um, these, uh, comic books are inexpensive. They're collectibles and they're real shoot stories. Uh, the John Crowther, the author actually 
asks, how did you be, how did you tell me about how you grew up and how you got to the WWF and how did you meet Jim Brunzel? So that takes my life story up to that point. Actually, Hogan was the one that got us together. So I'm sitting with him. And, uh, so Jimmy's will bring him up to that point as well because, uh, Hogan, uh, Vince was bringing me back and, um, um, he wanted to find a tag team partner for me. And Terry suggested Jim Brunzel because at that time they were, uh, Vince had already stolen Terry from Vern and he was taking their top talent. And the next thing they had was the high flyers, jumping Jim and Greg Gagne. So Jimmy gave his notice there. He came, we met up, uh, Brantford, Canada, and, uh, we, uh, had a great, um, hit it off right away. And again, we've, we were together as a killer bees for four years there and, um, wrestled all over the world as a killer bees afterwards from Russia to Galley, Singapore, Malaysia, Cote de Bali on the Island of Saba, uh, all, all over Italy. We had it the, in those days from 90 to 93, 94, was so hot on the independent circuit because wrestling was getting so, so hot <clears throat> and their tapes were behind. So we were like fresh to them. And, um, you know, it was great. It was great. I mean, personally, I think I had, my career was best as a singles wrestler. I had uh, a lot of success, but we didn't have the big stage like the WWE has to offer. So everybody will know me as a killer B more so than just be Brian Blair. So I'll, uh, as long as they call me, you know, uh, uh I'll take it or remember me. Uh, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> so it's all good. I mean, we still work together. Uh, we're booked in Niagara Falls in Canada. Um, uh, next year, early next year, we're booked in a lot of places this year still together. That's great. You know, as a single star, you definitely weren't a scrub not by a long shot. I mean, you had wins over Jimmy Garvin, Stan Stasiak, uh, Stan Hansen, and Bruiser Brody, amongst many others. Are you in contact with Hogan anymore? Well, you know, when uh, Terry was getting a divorce, um, my wife and his wife were very close. And Linda wanted my wife to testify against Terry in the divorce. And I wasn't about to let that happen. So, you know, his new wife, his new wife was kind of pissy about that. So it's, it's really kind of, you know, we still love each other and say hello and so on, but we just can't hang out like we used to, you know, it used to be an everyday thing, Yeah. but people change, things change. And, you know, I, I, you know, it's like, I, I love my colleagues. I, I can't say that there's anybody in the business that I dislike. I've had five shoots with five of the guys in the business and I was friends with them all afterwards. Um, you know, I never lost a fight. I can say that, but I never started one either. And that's because of all the stuff that hero and the guys taught me and just taught me to be, you know, be able to take care of myself. And when it, when push came to shove and I had to do that, I did. (laughs) So it's all good. Brian, you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but can you elaborate on these five guys or would you like to tell at least one story? Because, you know, I appreciate the fact that you are so candid 
And uh, it's, it's what, we, you know, so if you would like to tell a story, that'd be fantastic about, because sometimes you do have to take care of yourself. Well, Doug Summers, there's one, Doug Summers. Um, he's still alive. Um, no, he died about two years ago. Oh, did he? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, yes, yes. anyway, he apologized to me and uh, friended me on Facebook and everything before I, I'm sorry, I forgot about that. But uh, <clears throat> I was, I got married at a young age, at 22, to Mike McGurk and uh, Leroy's daughter and the promotion, and we were married for about a year. But, and she was very jealous. She would tell you that right now. She's a friend of mine, and we still get along. We still talk occasionally. And um, um, I found out that her and Doug were, were, you know, we're getting a divorce, but at the same time, she's still my wife. And I used to let uh, Doug ride in the car with us. And uh, um, anyway, somehow they wound up having an affair. So I find out about it and I had just got done wrestling Ron, uh, Ron star for the junior heavyweight world junior heavyweight championship in Tulsa I had a tremendous crowd. And, um, I go back to the Leroy's office and as I go into the office, Doug Summers is sitting in there. Well, I looked at him and I right away what the heck are you doing effing with my old lady oh what are you talking about what are you talking about so now he starts lying to me boom 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 I, I, then you know I got up in his face and so he goes to swing at me and when he did um, I took him down to the floor and I was actually merciless I, my, I just lost my temper too bad and I wound up throwing him into the walls and broke some of Leroy's trophies and um, beat him up pretty bad. I really didn't know how bad some guys, Oki Shikina, a bunch of different guys came in and finally pulled me off of him. And he was just laying there in blood. And I uh, took off, cleaned up. I had left the house with just my blue 72 blue Lincoln continental and my um, 18 foot caravel inboard outboard boat my some of my clothes uh, my great dane and five hundred dollars i left the seventy five thousand dollars that i put into the house in tulsa and everything else that i had bought and, uh, and saved up until that point i just left it all and i started to leave and i said i want to say goodbye to mike just one more time and as i <clears throat> i went to her house i pulled in Link Continental boat and everything. I'm on my way to the Von Erichs. David's waiting on me. Uh, my year and a half roommate, David Von Erich. He's waiting on me to get there. He's got a surprise for him. But, uh, uh, you know, they're all trying to cheer me up. Kev, Dave, you know, Kerry. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I knock on the door and Leroy comes to the door. He said, who is it? I said, it's Brian. He started cussing at me so bad. You, you broke the trophies in my room. I mean, he went off on me, off on me. He goes, get that ass out of here. And he slams the door. So I go back and sit in my blue leaky continental for a couple of minutes. I'm kind of thinking, golly, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I got to at least say goodbye. I got to at least say goodbye. So I walk around to the back and I can 
peek through the back curtains and I look and I see like a mummy laying on the couch. Now this is like three in the morning. There's like a mummy laying on the couch in the living room and Mike is sitting there feeding him soup. And that was Doug Summers. And he was completely bandaged up. He only had eyes and a mouth and a nose and uh, it, just the nostrils. So uh, that hurt me. That was like somebody just stuck a knife in my heart. So I go around to the back and I just said, well, I'm going to try one more time. And I knock on the door and all of a sudden Leroy slams the door open and he's got a gun. And as I see the gun pointed right at me, I uh, just um, uh, twist over to behind the wall because there's like a brick wall in front and the, and the door's inset. So I went behind the brick wall and all of a sudden it's blam, blam. And uh, um, his car was parked out there. He almost shot his tire because uh, I saw the dirt because I'm staring at it, scared to death. Uh, I'm thinking, should I run to the right now? Is he going to come outside? What's going to happen? I already knew for sure he was blind. But I had some stories before that. But <clears throat> first I wasn't so sure, but then I really found out he really was. Blind. But uh, so I knew he couldn't see me, but um, still he had a gun. He, there's a chance he can shoot me. And I'm already scared to death. You know, he just, pointed it in my face and but when it got you know if I would have stayed there maybe two more seconds I'd be dead and uh, so anyway after that I just got in my car and left drove to Texas and uh, uh, next year and a half was phenomenal with the Bon Eric so my story oh boy so um, that was one fight and uh, you know another fight uh, Matt Bourne Matt Bourne uh, Rick Flair, if you ever talk to Rick Flair, ask him what his favorite fight was. We were uh, at a bar somewhere uh, in the Midwest. Murdoch was there. Adonis was there. Godly, all, all, so many of the boys were there. Morocco um, and Flair's there, you know, acting crazy, good time. And uh, Matt Bourne just came into the territory. He was hadn't even been there a week yet. And um, he comes up to me and he goes, uh, hey, why are you messing with my girl? I said, Matt, what are you talking about? I said, you're messing with my girl. I said, who's your girl, Matt? I'm not messing with your girl. If I am, I, I don't know who it is. I mean, tell me who it is. And um, I said, you need to just calm down and go have a drink and uh, realize that I'm not messing with your girl. If, you, if, you, if your girl wants to come up and say that I messed with her in front of you, um, then uh, I apologize, but uh, I don't think that's the case. So as I turn around, boom, he hits me right in the back of the head. Um, Flair saw him hit me. So I felt the punch, and I, as I turn around, he grabs me and tries to take, tight waist me, belly to belly, and take me down. But as he does, I wind up on top of him, so he grabs my ears, and starts pulling my ears and my hair down so he can bite my nose. So I see his teeth, ah, my nose is getting closer, closer, and his teeth are open. Ah. And it, as they are, I just reached down and grabbed his lip with my teeth and I bit his lip off. And I just grabbed his lip and spit his lip out. And he's screaming and crying like a baby. Oh my gosh. And, um, so as he does that, he gets up and he starts swinging wildly. And I just start pulverizing him, bing, bang, boom, boom, boom. 
got him on the ground, bing, and the boys pulled me off of him. So um, he goes off and he leaves. Bloody leaves. Well, I'm sitting there having a drink with the guys. Oh, Flair's, t- you know, just going crazy, talking about that. Golly, we thought Matt Bourne was a tough guy. Da, 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 da. Everybody and uh, he comes back and jumps on me again. Well, this went on three times. That's he—he he was a tough guy because he took a heck of a beating, man. I'm telling you, that's Flair. He took a heck of a beating, and he would not stop. And uh, finally, we wound up. Uh, uh, he was like just crawling. Um, trying to grab my leg and we got to a door where it was like, like a slow alligator chasing me. <laughs> and uh, finally he gets to me to, to my leg and I, I, I want to kick him in the face, but I said, nah, I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm not going to do it because it was so easy to do. And I'm really pissed at this time. And Ivan Putsky says to me, or Ivan Kolos says, I'll oh, just let him alone. And, I said, here, just let me out. And I turned my back just for one second. And he hits me in the legs from behind, right in the middle of my knees from behind, buckles me. So I go down and he, uh, he grabs my leg and jumps on my back and he puts his hand towards my eye. And as he puts his hand towards my eye, uncle Ivan, Ivan Koloff kicks his hand, said no eyes. And, um, uh, after that, I got up one more time. I hit him about three more times. Down he was. And I left. That was it. But uh, Ric Flair said that was the greatest fight he's ever seen in his life. And the other ones were just, you know, like Larry Booker, uh, 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 Bobby uh, Bobby Jaggers, Larry Booker. But uh, they were just fights. Not much to them. I mean, they started stuff with me. From Larry Booker, I'll never forget him. We were at Bossier City at the hotel there in Bossier city and Murdoch and, uh, killer Carl Cox had rooms right next to each other. <clears throat> we were going there to have a beer and Larry Booker started complaining about how stiff I was. And then he started saying, nobody can out shoot the book. You know, I, I was the best shooter in Tennessee and all this kind of stuff. And so Cox and Murdoch, you know how they are. They start egging stuff on and Anyway, he swings at me and, that was it. He went down pretty quick and, uh, and there wasn't much to that. And then Bobby Jaggers, uh, I forget what he did, but, uh, he wouldn't do it again. Um, and the fifth guy, I'm trying to think of who the fifth guy was. Oh man, it'll come to me. Buzz Sawyer. Buzz Sawyer was the other one. Oh, please tell us about that. Well, Buzz, um, we had a heck of a 15 minute match. Uh, one of the best, 15 minute draws. It was his first match into the territory. And we had already got, this is the first time I've seen him since we had gotten in the fight. We were at a bar and he was drunk and, uh, you know, he just, you know, same old shit started, started, started. And he got on me, got on me, got on me. And finally, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what happened. All I remember is I was on top of him. It was another bruiser baller. Cause Matt, I mean, he was a buzz Sawyer was a tough guy. And, um, um, you know, all the boys were around again and, um, Matt just, uh, uh, was a little, uh, short on the stick that day. And, um, he finally, uh, um, quit. They, you know, pulled me away, 
got Matt, took him away, had no blood, and he was juiced from ear to ear. And, um, you know, told me that uh, we'd pick it up again tomorrow. And uh, that never happened. So. You know, I, I never met Buzz Sawyer, but I know that he was a bully, and I'm glad he got his comeuppance. And thank, on behalf of all the boys, thank you for your honesty, your stories, and thanks for standing up to these bullies that, you know, they're just, uh, they're miserable people, but every once in a while they meet a Brian Blair that uh, has to make them sit down. So thank you for that. Oh, that's my pleasure, I guess, Lanny. You know, we don't like bullies. Nobody likes but bullies. You know what? You were a fantastic guest on this podcast. JP, wasn't he great? Absolutely. I mean, we couldn't have asked for a better guest, Brian. You were candid. You held nothing back. And I know our listeners are going to find everything you said to be very interesting. It'd be good to have you back. Sure. Sometime I'll have to break down and tell you some Dusty and Andre stories. Oh, man, that would be great. But uh, for another time, uh, thank you. Be Brian Blair. Always the greatest respect. And uh, thank you so much. And uh, wasn't that great? Absolutely was. Now, Brian, how can our listeners find you on social media? They can go to KillerB1B at Twitter. Uh, and then um, they can actually go to the KillerBees.net and uh, got a lot of great stuff on there. There's a store there. There's all kinds of memorabilia things. and uh, So they can check out the KillerBees.net. But by all means, please uh, check out the CaulifloweralleyClub.org and uh, consider investing $25 in your happiness and the wrestlers that brought you so much in entertainment's health. I appreciate it, guys. JP, this has been awesome. I appreciate it, guys. T thank you so much. You guys keep on buzzing. You guys are official members of the Hive now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thanks again, Brian. It's been a pleasure having you on the Genius Cast. I wish you nothing but health, happiness, and good fortune in the days to come. Let's do this again soon. Well, thank you, guys, and God bless. I love being on the Genius Cast. Every Monday, we open a window to the past by simply tuning in to listen to the Genius Cast. The genius tells the stories like no other, from the antics on the road to simply being the macho man's younger brother. I want to thank Josh Blasco out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for sending in that original poem for us today. If you've got a poem you'd like to write about our show, or you'd just like to simply record a message for us and our listeners, you can send it to thegeniuscast at prowrestlingstories.com. JP, wasn't that great? Didn't he do a great job for Genius Cast? Oh, I thought Brian was fantastic. He had a lot of charisma. He told a lot of stories. He held nothing back. And he gave the juicy details for everything. And, you know, for me as a fan and our listeners, we get to sit underneath the learning tree as someone like Brian shares his stories from the past. You know, I really think there was a lot there for the Genius Cast faithful to enjoy. And I'll tell you what, you know, what I'm really proud of that I did is that I got him to elaborate on these shoots that he had, these fights that he had. You know, that's juicy gossip. And, you know, the fans wouldn't even know about any of these things if I hadn't, you know, pulled his chain a little. And I'm glad that you did, because who doesn't enjoy a bit of juicy gossip? You know, with the Cauliflower Alley Club, he's been able to stand up for people who have fallen on hard times, you know, no fault of their own. You know, whether it be to help with, you know, raising funds for medical costs or the foreclosure of a house. He's standing up and being a voice 
voice for those who are down, which is fantastic. And not only is he doing that now, but in the past, he's, he's been a voice of reason too. And at times, he had to deliver a bit of rough justice to those who deserved it. You know, like the Buzz Sawyers and the Matt Bourne, old doink. Those stories are crazy. But the advice he gave for current and past wrestlers were really good to follow. And let me tell you what, he's not just bragging. He can back up everything he said he can do. So it's not you're not bragging if you do what you say you can do. He was a real athlete. So was Paul Orndorff. And I'm glad we're going to use this genius cast to raise money for a guy that fell on hard times through no fault of his own. Freak out! It's the Macho Man Clip of the Week. Oh, yeah! No freak out! No confetti! No nothing! For nobody! Situations develop, man! I'm world champion, Macho Man Ready Savage! Was the belt defended it with honor, and then all of a sudden, some guy who calls himself the one man gang moves that dynasty. I still have the attitude and the guts. Made me a super ball player and world champion professional wrestler. And they fired my manager, Steve Cooper. Another guy would sink to his knees and beg for your mercy, Carmen. But I'm gonna stand up tall, man. Six two two thirty-five. Cause last night, stirred a candle for about two hours and got my head together and realized I could have to make it without Cooper, cause you got him suspended. Roll a BTR. So what? Roll it. For no reason. The mass protege. Supposed to be my partner. Carbon paid him probably about $25. Put a mask on him and unveiled him as the referee. And got himself from being suspended. Make me look stupid. Staring at that candle gave me new light. You ain't exposing nobody. All you did was kick a lion in the back. Turn my back to you. The name is Macho Man Randy Savage. When I get you down in the ring, I'm going to make you say it. I'm going to make you crawl to your knees and say, please, macho man, let me go. And then I'm not going to. I'm done. Take me off the air. 
Take me off the air. Thank you to Joe Stasi for sending in this week's clip, which comes from a promo your brother Randy did in your father's ICW territory back in 1980. Now, uh, Joe Stasi, he's one of the admins of the ICW, the Outlaws of Old School Wrestling, the Pafos Facebook group, which is definitely worth checking out for those who are fans of the ICW territory or for those like me who want to learn a bit more. He was also neighbors with you and your family in Lexington, Kentucky from the end of ICW until you and your brother left for WWF. Now he asks, I would like to know Lanny's insight on this ICW promo where Randy was crying. Okay, you want to know my insight? Uh, Randy was multidimensional. He could laugh, he could cry, he could do it all on the air. And I think he did a great job of each. Absolutely. That was an intense promo. He believed in intensity. No matter what he did, it was to the nth degree. And as a fan who knows him mainly from his WWF times in WCW, seeing him early on, finding that intensity, showing you know little sprinklings of what was to become the Macho Man was really incredible. That's right. And, you know, he was already the greatest interview in the country, and he just kept getting better and better and better. It's amazing to me, as fun as he is to imitate, I was always worried that especially looking back on it, what if some wrestler copied his interview and then went to New York before he got there? You know, it did happen before. Uh, Gorgeous George was George Wagner in Texas, and he sees a wrestler named Dizzy Davis, and he copied his entire gimmick, brings it to California, becomes a TV star, Gorgeous George. Um, He copied it from Dizzy Davis. People don't remember that because who the hell is Dizzy Davis, they say. Well, in Texas... He was the man, but that was before TV. Now, actually, this it's funny you brought up Gorgeous George because the second question Joe asked was, did your father, Angelo, pay for Gorgeous George's funeral? He heard that George was dead broke when he passed away and Angelo stepped up to pay for it. Yes, that's true. And for all the people that think my father was, well, he brought it on himself because he called himself the miser. Actually, he was the carpetbagger, and I thought, hey, nobody knows what a carpetbagger is unless they're a you know, a Civil War fan. So I said, why don't we change it to the miser, and you can make all these great interviews about money. And um, so he did, and it got over big, really big. And, you know, you played one of his interviews, and it was uh, better rich and dead than poor and alive. Believe it or not, that became a catchphrase, and it just got over He did it for a laugh, but see, a lot of the boys, you know, took it seriously. Um, Oh, he was very serious about money and, you know, saving, investing, and, you know, reaping the rewards, but he was also very, very generous, and I said, why did you pay for Gorgeous George's um, funeral? And he says, because I was going to quit the business in Columbus, Ohio, because Randy was about to be born, and we thought, since we both had college educations, the double paycheck of teaching school, we could raise our family. And, you know, it would be a nice life, mediocre life, not exciting like wrestling. So eight years later, he really did go into semi-retirement and he was able to buy, build a home in Downers Grove and pay for it with cash. And, you know, because this is what you call the Bohemian Easy Payment Plan, everything down, nothing to pay. He believed in that. And um, beautiful home, but not ostentatious, I would say utilitarian. You know, like, um, I don't remember, I think 2,500 square feet, I think. But um, in a, in, on two acres of land, it was a fantastic house for the time. 
you know, but now if you go to Ginger Creek, you'll see homes that, uh, you know, I went to school with Bill Ludwig of Ludwig Drums, and they had a home that was like a living room you could land a plane in. So also um, H. Wayne Heisinga, who was, he just passed away a few months ago. He was um, waste management. He started that company and Blockbuster Video when he got out just in time. And he he owned the Dolphins and the Marlins a couple of times, you know, and uh, he had a thing called Heisinga Holdings, which just a little bit like, oh, um, Warren Buffett and his uh, Berkshire Hathaway uh, group. So anyway, the thing is, no matter how much you got, we all leave the same way, don't we? That's right. Now, I, I don't think nowadays it's easy for people to just buy a house outright, you know, different times, unfortunately. Yes, well, my father said if it wasn't for Gorgeous George, you know, giving him the confidence that he needed to stay in the business, and then a few years later, he became a main eventer, and, you know, that was in the territorial days, and, you know, he did very, very well for himself, and he, when Randy and I wanted to be wrestlers, he thought it was a great idea. He He said, wrestling saved my life, why shouldn't it save yours? So... That's, you know, and one of his best friends was killed in a car crash, you know, in the Detroit area. That was Larry Shane, who called himself Leaping Larry Shane. And then, so my dad says, why don't you call yourself Leaping Lanny? And I said, yeah, I like the alliteration. Sounds good. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned in one of the earlier episodes that your father used to be the designated driver when he would go out with Gorgeous George so that he can get drunk and so on. Do you have any funny stories or good stories about Gorgeous George and your father on the road? Well, my dad never knew he was an alcoholic. He just thought he drank all the time. So, mm -hmm. and, uh, and his keychain, he carried a can opener because back then, you know, you needed a can opener to open the beers. So, right. and then he used to put some harder stuff into the beer and, you know, it was a nightmare. Uh, you know, it's nothing, nothing to laugh about. You know, it's a serious, uh, alcoholism is a thing. And, uh, you know, it's, um, he was a nice person. It's just that what can you do, right? You know, you get bad habits and that's it. That brings our show to an end. Is there anything you'd like to uh, promote? GeniusLannyPafo.com is where on the video section you see my favorite memories. For example, it starts with my speech that I gave for my brother for the Hall of Fame for the WWE. And if you go into the video section, you'll see my match with Hulk Hogan, my appearance on Regis Philbin, and different things that mean a lot to me. GeniusLannyPafo.com And that's it for now. Until next week, so long. I just want to say, not as the genius, not as Leaping Lanny, as Lanny Poffo. Thank you to all the fans that made this genius cast a big success. It's a lot of fun to do. I hope it's fun to listen to. We can't thank you enough, guys. And thank you to everyone who's already left a five-star review on iTunes. Every single one of those is going to help our show grow. If you haven't done so already, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TheGeniusCast. We're going to be using those accounts to keep the Poffo family memory alive. 
quick shout out to ProWrestlingTees.com where Lanny's got his Brothers from Another Mother t-shirt for sale. You've seen it on All In, now you can wear it in front of your wrestling friends. You've got Lanny Poffo on one side and you've got Black Machismo Jay Lethal on the other. Thank you to all the fans who've written in and sent in your poems that you wrote specifically for this show. That means a lot. You can continue to do that and send Macho Man Clip of the Week suggestions and questions for the show to thegeniuscast at prowrestlingstories.com. Find Lanny every Monday on Reddit where he'll be taking your questions and you get a chance to communicate with the genius himself. We had a lot of fun this week, and we can't wait to bring you a new Genius Cast each Monday, so don't forget to subscribe. I'm J.P. Zarka, and you can find me on Twitter at J.P. Zarka, that's Z like zebra, A-R-K-A. That's it for now. So long and goodbye. You have been listening to The Genius Cast with Lanny Poffo. This has been a ProWrestlingStories.com production. Find us on social media at The Genius Cast, at Lanny Poffo, or at J.P. Zarka. If you'd like to advertise to thousands of dedicated listeners on our show each week, send us an email at TheGeniusCast at ProWrestlingStories.com. Until next time.